1: I can remember talking to her at the table one day and I don't know if she had mentioned it beforehand but I asked her the question that I was sort of dreading the answer. I asked her, could she ever come home? And she said no. Uh, She said that some of the orders have a house that parents can come to stay in with the nuns but she didn't say at the time that Cork didn't have... (laughs) such a, um, a place for her parents to stay, you know. I think she was just breaking, breaking it gently to us, you know.
2: <laughs> Anya O'Reilly was 21 and a law graduate when she entered the Poor Clares, an enclosed order. She has made the decision to devote her life to prayer. She will never go home again. You will hear the voices of Anya, who is now called Sister Colette Marie, novice mistress Sister Miriam, Anya's parents Mary and Paddy O'Reilly, her sister Breed and her brother Amon.
3: was thought that I might be coming on and uh when I was in school it it was all its possibility so um when around when I did my leaving search uh I thought of it but at, th- at that at that time i didn't feel ready so um I went to university and uh, did law here at u c c for three years and uh I think it was in my final year that one week a friend of mine said to me, did I ever think of becoming a nun? And about the same time my brother wrote to me, Uh, he's a seminarian, and suggested that he thought I had a vocation. So these two things coming together seemed to be the Lord telling me something. So um, I used to pass by this monastery on my way to college and uh, it occurred to me, like, you know, what's going on behind the wall, like, and... Was there a possibility that I might be behind there someday? Like, so um, it was after I graduated that uh, I went and spoke to a priest, and uh, he said, "Well, you'd better find out something about the contemplative life if you feel attracted to it." So um, I first came here then in about June '88, after after getting my degree, and uh, it was about a year and a half later that I actually
2: entered. When you realised that perhaps you might have a vocation, what what was your reaction? Well, I suppose it was mixed. Uh,
3: The fact that I was thinking of entering an enclosed order uh, did make a difference. Um, If I had been thinking of entering an active order, it wouldn't have been quite so hard, I suppose. Um, My family reacted, as you can imagine. Uh, Some of them found it hard. Um, I remember my dad saying to me, you know, it's great that you're entering, like. And then he said, does, "But does that mean you won't be coming home anymore?" You know, it—it it is the enclosure part of it. I think is the part that hits people most, like. But uh, at the same time, I felt that it was what God wanted for me, and uh, that um, I suppose really, like, I felt a peace about it from that point of view.
4: We still share everything with her, you know, as a family. Like, it's like I'd say she's probably more in touch a lot of the time with what's going on than. Likes so I am like up here in Dublin, because the letters to and fro like to her and from her are very frequent and they're they're very very funny like in real life it's not stage at all like and it's not um she's still very natural, like you know it's so everything I would say every circumstance, especially at home like or anything man would. Say so be worried about or get excited about, or any incidents on you would know them, like you know it's the flow is still there, so she shares everything she's still very much family like so the occasion itself she'll miss, and we'll miss her at the occasions, but I still think she can you know it's funny, but I suppose her her presence will still be there, and you know
2: what do people say to you when they when they discover that your sister is a nun in an enclosed order, a young girl in her early 20s, a law graduate? What's, what, are, what do people, or how well, do people react?
4: People who've known her actually would say, some would say, I saw that she was very saintly or very holy or very gentle. Or, that, that, um, or else... They would say, oh, she was really, she's a really, really good person, and that's a total waste of a life in there, like she could have done, doing some fantastic work, say with people, with socially deprived people, or something like that. Um, people who haven't known her, would obviously say the same thing, as in, you know, that's a waste of a, a good person's life. But, uh, the general reaction, I suppose, overall is one of, it's that, does that, does that thing still go on, you know? And, most people are a bit naive in saying that and then they follow that by saying they won't allow her out at all. And it's not a case, I always say to them, it's not a case if they won't allow her out. She doesn't actually want to come out. You know, she wants, that's, she's committed herself to that. So I think when people when people react to me telling them that my sister's in an enclosed order, we only see her three times a year, the general reaction from young people, I suppose my own age, would be that This thing still doesn't go. This thing still goes on, and she's not allowed out. Like,
2: do you think it's a waste of a life?
4: No, I think if well, she's happy, and I would believe in the power of prayer, even though I probably wouldn't practice it as much as I should, or obviously not as much as she does. So. Some good, I'd say, comes out of it. Some good definitely comes out of it.
3: We get up at quarter past five and then we go down to what we call choir, which is our in, in enclosed chapel, which is opposite the public chapel. And there we have um, we say some prayers, and then we have some spiritual reading for about a quarter of an hour, and then we have morning meditation. We have two periods of meditation during the day, which is, um, I suppose, mental prayer, silent pr- personal prayer. And uh, then after that, at about seven o'clock, we have the Divine Office, morning prayer of the Divine Office, the breviary. And then at um, seven thirty, we have a Holy Mass. We have two Masses each day and the first is at 7.30 and after that we have breakfast and uh, which is very welcome then <laughs> and uh, then we go to our different duties before our 10 o'clock mass and we have another office afterwards and then we go back to our different duties and we have spiritual reading then for half an hour before seeing another little office and then dinner and uh, every day then we have um, A half an hour of recreation which means that the whole community come together in a kind of family atmosphere and because normally during the day we have a rule of silence it's not very strict in the sense that it doesn't mean we can't talk to each other at all but it it means that we're limited in a sense that there are certain areas where we don't talk and um, so this period of recreation then is a time for chatting and family news and things like that for the rest of the day then usually um, you know, we'd go gardening maybe in the afternoon f- for as, as much time as, as, as we can. And we also have what we call a study hour for an hour in the afternoon. And that's time for readings um, and for maybe uh, printing. We do some printing, calligraphy, those kind of things. So it's a kind of an hour when maybe to use to develop our talents in those areas and maybe learning some music or those kind of things and also for reading the lives of saints, and the Roman observer, and all kinds of educational subjects. <laughs> and um, at five o'clock we have evening prayer from the Divine Office, and then after that we have benediction at 5.30 each evening, and after that we have evening meditation, and then supper, and then we say the rosary, we say the crown of Our Lady, the seven joys, we don't say the five mysteries, you know what I mean? we say the seven joys of Our Lady, it's a Franciscan tradition and uh, after that we have night prayer and then we retire.
1: <laughs> she was always, she was a very happy child. Uh, you, you couldn't, um, you didn't, we didn't have to chastise her much, we didn't have to slap her much, but you, you wouldn't really have got around to slapping her because she'd be so sorry and she'd be crying before if she did anything wrong. Before you'd say anything to her, that I don't think she was ever slapped. When she was growing up, and she was obviously
2: smart in school, you know, did you have any inclination at that stage that she'd, you know,
1: what, what route she'd take? Yes, I think. Well, at least in her teens, uh, yes. If yes, I always felt, it, I think most people did actually who knew her felt it was a possibility. But we didn't. Think, I didn't anyway. I think of the poor Clares. Then sometimes people, a lot of people, said it to us all along. For a little, from the time she was 16, 17, I suppose you know that. Oh, you will be a nun. And from my experience, I often felt maybe she won't. It's often the girls that you expect to be nuns who don't become nuns. You know the like the tomboyish girls now often bec- makes a very good nun. Well, Anya was pretty average, like. But she wasn't she wasn't anywhere wild or tomboyish, you know. She was good at sports and that, but she was... um, I just felt maybe she mightn't, you know, but the possibility was always there, I think.
2: She chose then to do a law degree. Did Mm. that surprise you? Uh,
1: I think she didn't know what to do. Uh, I don't think law really suited her. I remember asking her, even when she had registered, could she change to something like social science? Because law was supposed to be very dry, and you felt that Anya had a sort of sense of vocation anyway, that she wouldn't be able to fulfil with a law degree. So um, I think she did well in it, considering that she wasn't... I don't think she was ever going to continue in law. She'd have done something else if she hadn't entered.
5: She was a member of the local athletic club, and she was pretty good at at um, athletics. She was took part in racing, and uh, they had a, a basketball team here in the secondary school, and uh, I think they won the I think the monster uh, title. Um, um, she had made lots of friends and um, there were several of her classmates would be calling to the house to see her and that, you know. So... Um, yeah.
2: Did you know anything about, we we'll would say, the poor Clare's before Anya decided to enter?
5: No, I didn't. I didn't even know how many houses they had in Ireland. I knew they had some, but I didn't know how many houses they had in Ireland. So you could say I knew very little about them, you know.
3: For me, it was a a desire to spend my life um, doing God's work, kind of, that uh, I wasn't even interested in teaching or nursing, but I suppose the reality of God and the fact that this life, no matter how long it might be, is short and that eternity is going to be pretty long, like, and that that's really the most important thing. And uh, I suppose I was touched maybe by things like Our Lady's message at Fatima when, you know, she talks about, you know, the fact that hell does exist, like, and um, there is, we can help to save souls. And that's, like, I firmly believe that it's a reality. And it it is, to me, it's one of the most important things. I mean, as I say, like, eternity it will be pretty long. And to think that somebody mightn't be saved, like, is the worst thing that could really happen. And so that I felt that I wanted to devote my life not just to maybe, you know, um, having God, God's business, we'll say, as a, a sideline or something that I could do in my spare time, like... Uh, but to make it my life's work. And uh, also, I suppose, I think Jesus has always been my best friend in a way. I mean, we always have good friends, like, but I do feel that uh, Jesus has been my best friend and uh, so that, in a way, it's natural to want to spend my life with him.
6: He was definitely Daddy's pet. As a baby, we'll say. Um... Later on, uh, we'll say, growing up, you know, when she was kind of maybe 15 or 16 and up to even now, she hasn't changed personality that much. Uh, always very gentle, unassuming. Um, never that bothered, you know, about material things. And, you know, she was the kind, like, if she got a new something new to wear, like, where I would be dying to have the new thing, like, you know, it wouldn't bother her, like, if she didn't have something new to wear. She was always maybe happier than the rest of us, to be at home not doing a whole lot with Daddy and Daddy, kind of, when the rest of us would be, you know, which were interested in Skype enough. Um, when she went to do her degree in law then, UCC, we never knew much about it. Like She never talked much about it. Or, and I never, ever really pictured her practising law. Did you ever think at any stage
2: when she was growing up that perhaps she would become a nun?
6: Like... When we discovered it or when, when she said it, which she didn't she didn't talk about it at all, like it was a surprise and yet it wasn't a surprise like because you know, because of her personality, in that sense it wasn't a surprise. You could have seen why she would have made the decision, but she definitely made it in a quiet manner. And uh no, it wasn't a surprise in that sense, but it still was a surprise in that she hadn't talked about it. But she was always more, you know, quite religious like and from that point of view it wasn't a surprise. What was your first reaction when she told you? Oh yuck like <laughs> um No, I didn't like her entering at all. Um I suppose like what you see as your own future, maybe you know, you kind of you can't picture why somebody else would pick a completely different career or choice to you and uh I think she would have made a lovely mother, you know, and I suppose because I am a mother and I have small children, like, you know, I don't like her to to see her denied that privilege maybe, you know. Um, No, it took me a long while to come to terms with it and I didn't even like talking about it very much and it, it upset my mother an awful lot, you know, but at the same time, like it was her decision.
7: Sister Colette-Marie now, she was you. then she, uh, her first day to arrive at the monastery I uh, happened to be the novice mistress for a few years before that so it was my privilege and my duty to welcome her and to take over directing her from the time she came in guiding her and instructing her into our way of life and I happened to be there at the actual moment when she was parting with her family so that if you like, I had to be a bridge.
2: <laughs> what was that like?
7: Oh, it's always an occasion when you get a lump in your throat, and you just have to hope for the best that uh, y- you know that um, that you'll be able to support support the through the tears.
2: Do many young people come in?
7: Well, um, comparatively speaking, with the other religious orders, we've had a, a, a constant you know flow of people coming but as the nuns say they comes and they goes but mostly they goes (laughs) but it's in that sense like we have had people coming steadily over the years you know young people and some some stay some make it some stay for a short while some a little longer but I would see each person's coming to us as a providential touch of God and there's a mystery in why a person would be called to come and then find that, well, no, this isn't where God wants me. I think there's a great mystery in that for all of us.
3: The grill is almost the first
7: thing people see.
3: It it means that, for example, I I couldn't hug somebody, but I can shake hands fine. But um, the life itself is balanced and it's um, peaceful and it's healthy in the sense that um, while we have quite a lot of time for prayer compared with, we'll say, <laughs> ordinary people in Vertical, uh, at the same time we have a, quite a big garden and we have plenty of time for manual work. And uh, I suppose that's a kind of a good, healthy thing that we need like we need with the work. Um, and really, it's, it's, um, it's, I'd say it's a healthy kind of a lifestyle and it's natural.
2: Do you ever... Um think of, we'll say, the outside life? Because you're, you're in the convent now, three years. Have, have you ever been outside since since you entered? Uh, twice. Once for medical reasons and once for devote. Uh,
3: just just twice, three really. days out, you know, for uh, like a matter of an hour or two each time. Not even an hour or two, just out the road and back in. <laughs> what was that like? Well, it was, it was kind of interesting. In a sense, it was funny because When we went to vote, the sisters in the car with me were saying, gosh, the buses are square. They used to be round. They used to be green and they're all colours. So I think if anybody had been listening to us, it would have really sounded like we were out of the ark. But, um, well, it's nice, you know, it it is nice now and again to get out. Just to to see a different different scene. But uh, thank God in this monastery, you know, we do have a nice view out our windows. And we have nice trees in our garden. And that's, I think that's a help, really, you know, to
6: be able to see, you know, scenery is always a kind of nice thing, you know. <laughs> there are things that she's denied herself. So I wouldn't like to deny myself. You know, I mean, the chance to get married, to have a family, to see your own children growing up. Then all the simple pleasures that you miss, like, I mean, you know, kind of reading a magazine or looking at television or going for a walk, other than in the particular grounds, we'll say... I mean, she can never go to the sea again. Sure she can't. I mean, I never thought of that. Like, You know, she can't... You know, she can't go for coffee with a friend like her. You know, she gives up all those maybe simple things that we really love, but well, that I love particularly, you know. I mean, she obviously, you know, the things maybe are more important to her. But all the time I do feel it was her own choice, you know. I, I always say, like, she's not stupid, you know, she's an educated girl. Not even that she's an educated girl. She's a sensible girl, I mean, More than more than she's an educated girl. She's a sensible girl. Like, it was completely her choice to go in. And, you know, I mean, she can come out. That's the great thing. And we were laughing the last visit that we were done. like, maybe there's, you know, two or three of us married in the family. We were kind of saying, you know, if anything happens, like, you, we can't really walk away as easily as she can. If she decided in the morning, like, she can leave, no matter what vows she's taken.
2: What's the most difficult thing, do you think, about her entering an order like the poor Claire's?
6: From her point of view, that she would like to have a family or that she would like to have children. Would she? I don't know. I never asked her. I wouldn't like to ask her because I think it might upset her. I don't know. I never asked her that. From my point of view, the fact that it upsets my mother so much. You know, like, you know, through the... The confer, uh, not the conferring, the um. The day of her profession now. Like Mammy cried, like I'd say, until it was time to bring up the gifts, and then because she had to bring up the gifts, she kind of had to get back together. Like, um, yeah, I think it's definitely upsetting, on my mother. It's hard on her from that point of view. Yeah, uh, I suppose oh, that she'll never be able to come down and visit us, or, you know, each Christmas like this. She definitely won't be there, whatever, but anybody else, she definitely won't be there. You can kind of count her out.
5: The grill itself is about, say, roughly four feet square, and it, it's about, the, the bottom of it is about uh, two and a half, three feet from the ground. So the, there's a big area, really, and uh, the each, each um, we'll say, little hole in it is, is about maybe three, four inches square. Do you know?
2: Do you think it's a, a huge barrier between you now?
5: I don't, in fact. I don't. No, the fact that she can come out there and talk to us for um, maybe two or three hours, all the family, and, um, uh, as I say, you get used to the grill and so on, so I don't think it's a barrier, no. If it's one of their rules, so be it, you know.
2: Would you have chosen this way of life for her?
5: Um... I doubt if I would. You know, what um once she's happy, that's the principal thing, you know.
2: Do you ever think that she's denying herself certain pleasures in life or not fulfilling maybe certain mm-hmm. talents that she has.
5: I wouldn't. I I um I would be very happy that uh, that or I would feel that she's happier than most our girls of her age i um, come to where she is, and um, I suppose the danger in the outside world now is that um, a lot of our um, age group are, to, in my mind, exploited to an extent, you know. So that uh, I'm not saying that maybe I would like her to be in a very sheltered life just for that reason, but um, uh, still I think she's as happy as any girl can be, you know.
2: feel you're here 17 years now do you ever feel you've missed out on things we'll say like uh, family children or did you ever want that in the first instance
7: well i had never really uh, wanted a family as such i did want to get married if you can add that one up i don't think it's very theologically correct but um i did yes i loved i loved fellows (laughs) and uh, i loved the variety of men but um it's funny that I did lines, I did many lines and I had many relationships with uh, with people. But I found that I could never share this deepest part of myself with anybody. I did have a very good friend, a girlfriend in college. And I found that the fellows that I went out with, I got on terrifically well with them. But I could never share this very deepest part of me. And I thought it was that I couldn't get any fellow with a good faith, you know, a good religious faith, but in actual fact, it was god 's way of saying, "Look i I want to be the focus of your love, and I want you to share all your love with me i didn 't realize that when I was searching and wanting as I thought, to get married, but it was that i was I was searching for this to, to love and to be loved by one person, and it, it happened to be God. <sighs> And when I realised that, it was great, but until I realised it, it was rather confusing. <laughs> do
2: you ever discuss with the young nuns who come in, do you ever discuss their fears, their worries, that perhaps they've made or haven't made the right decision?
7: Yes, that that would be my primary, my primary um, role, if you like, as novice mistress. It, within the six years of the formation period, to discern together that the the postulant or the candidate, that we would discern together. It's a two-way decision. If I feel that it's very obvious that a person hasn't a vocation, well, I have to, with the help of God and with the help of the formation team, I have to try and help them to see that themselves so that I can't come along and say, look, you haven't a vocation, forget it, get out. I have to help them to come through the journey of seeing it themselves and uh, well and good if they do find it themselves but if they don't if they can't come to the decision they've got to be helped to realise it you know and it does take a full six years really uh, to you know by the time the spiritual and psychological and emotional growing pains have been worked through it does take a lot of maturity to say yes I think I can be almost sure this is where God wants me and the little percent percentage of me that's not sure well I trust to God to to look after that little percentage as well Well we do
3: hear a news bulletin and um, some of the sisters read the, the paper so that we do hear what's necessary um, of course we wouldn't be okay with everything that's going on um, like we get surprises you know now and again things come out and we're, we don't are not up to the latest but um, I suppose we're in touch with what matters, you know, and um, a lot of the sisters would have contact with the public. I mean, we do exercise um, a kind of an apostolate in the sense that a lot of people come to talk to one or two of the sisters um, and also they write, asking for prayers, and and there are so many problems in the world, and uh, they do come come to us. And uh, from that point of view, we would be in touch with with that and with what matters. And we do try to be in touch too with what's happening in the church. We try to be aware of that and we get lots of religious publications. So that, and, uh, well, we try to be in touch, as I say, with what
2: matters. Do you ever feel the world is passing you by? <laughs> uh,
3: <well laughs> um. I suppose, in a way, the world seems to be running so fast, like, in that sense, it could be passing me by. But um, I think, you know, I think, in a sense, it's good, what what we're doing is good, in the sense that we're kind of almost stepping off the world and letting it run long. But uh, I think we can, in a sense, maybe see things better, to be able to step out from the rush, because so much of life is a rush, and I suppose nowadays especially... And um, things, you know, that's the way life is. Like, especially, I suppose, in we're in the Western world, and it's like that. But in a sense, I suppose, um, our life is it's a peaceful and quiet most of the time. <laughs> and in that sense, I suppose we can kind of see what's really happening in the world. Like, maybe the Lord gives us a kind of an insight. At least we try to be able to see what's really happening, and that. The invisible world is often, is really the more important and more real and that if we're rushing too much that we don't see that,
7: the invisible, the things of the spirit will say,
2: you know. Will you ever go out again?
7: Well, we do go to the dentist. We go to hospital if we need to or we go to vote if there's, um, you know, if it's a moral or religious issue at stake, like the time the referendum on abortion and the referendum on divorce.
2: When you go out to
7: people, look at you strangely. Oh, when we go out to the dentistry to vote, yeah. I mean, the local people would kind of have a feeling that, they're the poor players, you know, they never go out. (laughs) And um, they do, they definitely look at us strangely, but I'd say maybe not as strangely as we look at them.
2: (laughs) Does anything surprise you when you go outside? Oh, the cars,
7: yeah, the speed of cars and the whole one-way traffic business, that's, uh, yeah that's really changed you know i'd all if i see a car coming now and i'm in a, inside and in, you know a passenger i almost duck because i think they're going to come through the window screen and i had a motorbike so that i shouldn't really find it that um, you know that different but it's just not being not being out on the road for so long that uh, suddenly when you're out you think uh, the whole thing is going to disintegrate
2: <laughs> when you get that taste of freedom do you ever wish you could stay outside
7: No, I think it's because that the perspective has got into the blood and I just feel that I'm rooted, rooted like in the one thing that matters, you know, and I really, I bring all the people back in with me. Your
2: normal day, how much silence would be involved in that?
7: Well, St. Clare says in her rule, let the sisters keep silence. Um... uh, when, uh, from the hour of Compline that's from the night office until the following morning that's called the, the great silence it's in the monastic tradition everywhere and uh, she says they, may, they shall also keep silence in the choir that's our chapel in the refectory while eating and in the dormitories and we're expected to keep silence within reason for the most of the day, but she has a beautiful little sentence. She says, however, the sisters may say whatever is necessary, briefly and in a low voice, always, so that it's not a rigid silence. It's it's a helpful silence to the to the prayer life. You studied music in UCC.
2: Uh, do you still play a lot of music?
7: Um. Well, uh, we play music for the liturgy that's for the divine office which we chant seven times a day six times a day and once at midnight and uh, there are hymns in the divine office which we always sing and we would sing the canticles like the Magnificat Canticle canticle. and uh, that happens maybe twice a day morning and evening especially and then we would sing the other hymns And then we have singing for the Mass, depending on the um, occasion. You know, it's called progressive solemnity. If it's a big feast day, well, we'll sing most of the Mass with appropriate hymns. And uh, if it's just an ordinary day, well, we'll just highlight the three parts that are always sung, the Gospel, Alleluia, the acclamation after the consecration, and the great Amen. And that, that determines the kind of music that I play now.
3: grill is always there between us like um so that in that sense i'm conscious of not not being with them in the full sense you know what i mean of being at home with them like the fact that the grill is there like but um at the same time uh as i say it is a little bit hard like but then the lord gives the grace and actually having a visit in a way it brings it all back and while instead of having the visit and having your family making things much easier and being great it can actually bring all the sadness the sadness back Like, because the actual moment of leaving can be almost heartbreaking in the sense that like I had come to the, the decision myself but my family just had to accept it they hadn't come to it they hadn't chosen it so that uh, for them it was a matter of trying to accept something they maybe couldn't understand very well so that when one enters one has that feeling of almost breaking somebody else's heart so that um the hardship you know that pain is there like and uh but and again like I wouldn't like to give the impression that everything is really hard because it's not and even I I think even my family you know as they say once they see that I'm happy they're happy like
2: As a mother, what is it like uh, to know that she won't come home again? Tough, tough, yeah. Mm. But she's happy. Does that make it any easier?
1: Yes, yes,
2: it does.